0: In 1818, Mary Shelley published her infamous novel Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus. More than just a work of Gothic fiction, it represented a host of fears and concerns that the public held after viewing experiments by the natural philosophers of the day. In the same year, in a lecture theatre in Glasgow, the dissection and supposed resurrection of an executed criminal took place. As electrodes were placed on the body, it jumped and danced, its fingers moved. Nimbly like those of a violin player. All for the and all of the and all of this for the amazement of the excited audience members. It was the dawn of electricity and a period of wild experimentation in an age of divisive and dangerous theories. This is dark histories where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 7, Episode 3. I'm your host Ben, as always, and it's good to be back. There's not much to mention this week, so we should probably just jump straight into it. This week's episode is called Electricity, Galvanism and the Resurrection of Thomas Weems. By the late 18th century, electricity was a known but far from understood phenomena. The natural philosophers of the age had been experimenting for some time with a series of ever-expanding experiments that seemed to be designed as much for entertainment as they were for education. Unsurprisingly, as they boldly strode through the new discoveries of the Enlightenment, they were found to be spectacularly far from the mark on more than a few occasions. Joseph Priestley's dephlogisticated air is a particular highlight from the 1770s when he discovered the aforementioned gas, which is better known today as oxygen, and spent considerable time promoting its medical effects, notably its superior goodness that he theorised may well go on to become a fashionable article in luxury, with all the most well-turned-out nobles carting a canister of their magical elixir behind them as they toured the streets. Priestley enjoyed gases very much, discovering several, but he was also a big enthusiast of electricity publishing an all-encompassing tome on the subject entitled The History and Present State of Electricity. Truthfully, the state of electricity in the 1700s was rather one of some confusion, and had only just begun to show progress for the first time in almost 2,000 years. The ancient Greeks were the first to experiment with static electricity, rubbing pieces of amber with strips of animal fur to generate a charge capable of attracting dried blades of grass. This force, they concluded, was proof that all things were full of God. The Egyptians were thought to have dabbled with species of electric fish, even using them to shock the body as a curative. It wasn't until the 17th century, however, that science related to electricity really started kicking off. The Age of Enlightenment had swept through Europe, rocking politics, philosophy and theology, and sparking a scientific revolution that saw huge advancements in mathematics, physics, astronomy biology and chemistry that would fundamentally alter the human world. In terms of electricity, experiments into electrostatic were making a big comeback, largely evolving from the same experiments carried out by the ancient Greeks. Francis Hawkesby and Jean Theophilus des Aguliers were two British natural philosophers active in the early 18th century that both built contraptions capable of generating static electricity. Hawkesby, initially hired as an assistant to Newton at the Royal Society, and eventually promoted to the chief experimentalist and instrument maker, had been watching earlier experiments related to magnetism and gravity that had led to the creation of the barometer. Curiously, the vacuum, created within the devices, was found to emit a glow, and Hawkesby correctly guessed that it was to do with the mercury vapours trapped in the glass. He experimented further by creating a spinning glass ball that he would touch to create a static charge, noticing then that when he went on to touch both the glass ball and the glass tube, the light got brighter, creating the basis for what would later become the foundations of neon lighting and mercury vapour lamps. Desagulier was Hawkesbury's replacement at the Royal Society after his tenure, and working together with Stephen Gray, his experiments with various materials led him to coin the terms conductor and insulator. Decegulia and Gray had essentially discovered electrical flow, and they experimented with this new concept by dangling a glass ball out of a window tied by a silk string. Whilst they held the other end of the string, they were charged with static electricity by a spinning glass globe, and they watched on amazed as the glass ball below them collected feathers from 30 feet away. In a time when experiments were designed to entertain as much as anything else, they pushed the boundaries by dangling children from frames tied with silk strings and amazed crowds as feathers whipped up off the ground jumping into the children's hands. Using the human body as a conductor was a new and exciting way of demonstrating electrical experiments that also opened the gates to the idea that electricity and a human body were somehow connected. Matthias Bose continued experimentation with a similar glass globe that was pioneered by Hawkesby, utilising a very theatrical flair in his lectures. Flamboyant and eccentric – He would demonstrate static charges and electrical flow by inviting members from his lecture's audience to kiss a young woman that he would stand on a block of insulating material whilst being given a static charge from a glass globe. As the spectators would lean in, they would be shocked by a relatively small but perfectly disturbing electric shock. In other demonstrations, he would charge himself with static electricity and then shoot a spark from his finger into a bowl of alcohol, igniting the liquid in a ball of flames. His experiments may have looked like silly titillation to some, and this viewpoint was only strengthened by the fact that he preferred to keep many of his methods secret, cementing them as demonstrations for entertainment rather than education, but they did inspire others to further his work. Eveld von Kleist used a rotating glass globe to store a charge of electricity within a glass medicine bottle filled with alcohol, working on the premise that he could capture this flow of electricity within the bottle. The theory was a little off, But the principle was sound enough, and the leyden jar was invented, a device able to store an electrostatic charge that became fundamental in later experimentation with electricity. By the late 1700s, Luigi Galvani, after years of researching the hearing capabilities of animals at the Academy of Sciences in the Institute of Bologna, turned his interests towards electrostatic and began to design his own experiments with various versions of the static-producing machines that had been touring around Europe to excited lecture theatres. It didn't take Galvani long to produce his own theories to explain the connection between life and electricity. In modern retellings, the story has no doubt been mythologized to a certain degree, but the long and the short of any version involves a dead frog left to idle by itself on a workbench in his laboratory in September of 1786. Depending on which version you go by, the frog had been either a leftover, prepared for Galvani's dinner by his wife, or was the perhaps more likely discarded carcass of a dissected frog. Either way, the animal had its head cut off and its insides removed. Left to one side on his workbench and forgotten about, the frog gained Galvani's renewed attention when one of his assistants touched a scalpel up against the frog's skin and one of its legs started jumping around, as if it had somehow returned to life. Galvani immediately began working with more frogs, keen to understand precisely what had been going on, and he soon came to the conclusion that when the frogs' nerves came into contact with the charge of electrostatic force, they would jump around, contracting their muscles. He had initially tried hanging frogs from the iron railings in his garden to see if electric storms would generate enough charge to reanimate the legs. However, when the legs showed signs of movement, even when the weather was clear, he turned his mind instead to the copper hooks that he had been using to hang them on the iron railings, concluding that it was these metals that were playing a role. He took his chopped-up frogs back inside and began testing them with bits of copper wire along with zinc and iron plates until he confidently concluded that he had discovered proof of something which he called animal electricity, an innate force which coursed through the bodies of all living things, emanating out from the brain, using the nerves as conduits and the muscles as a sort of biological laden jar. Furthermore, as far as Galvani was concerned, the movement in the frog's legs was akin to bona fide reanimation. Galvani's theories were not universally accepted. On the contrary, there were many, many natural philosophers and scientists that refuted them outright. One of his most famous dissenters was the Italian physicist and chemist named Alessandro Volta, Volta had been recreating Galvani's frog experiments for himself and found that the results were similar no matter if the frog was dead or alive. Given this fact, the movement seen could not have been reanimation. The main point to take away from Volta's experiments is that he believed that the electrical power convulsing the frog's legs was not stored within the frog itself, but was being introduced to the carcass via the metals used to touch the flesh, with the legs simply acting as a conductor. He experimented with various metals, noting that the results varied depending on which ones were used, concluding that silver and zinc would have the best results. These two opposing theories created distinct schools of thought, and each went on over the following decades to appeal to their own students, who became known as Galvanists and Voltists. Galvani died in 1798, and two years later, Volta used his theory to invent a device constructed of stacked zinc and copper disks, separated by wet cardboard soaked in acid, which he named the Voltaic Pile. This was, essentially, the first ever working battery. To the Voltists, it was proof beyond, since the Voltaic Pile was able to produce an electric charge without the use of any biological matter. But the Galvanists were not sold, and they forged forward in efforts to find a way to produce electricity without the use of metals at all directly opposing the voltaic pile. It was Galvani's nephew, Giovanni Aldini, who took the charge when he toured Europe to demonstrate his own experiments, ironically using a version of the voltaic pile to reanimate the decapitated heads of recently deceased oxen. His animal piles were a divisive hit amongst the Galvanists, who further embraced the theory. In truth, both sides were touching on elements that were partially correct, but neither were willing to concede credit to the other side of the argument nor look beyond their own boundaries. These two separate theories led to an arms race of experiments that grew more and more extreme in their nature, each side hoping to pull in the crowds who were looking to be entertained. One French natural philosopher attempted to recreate a voltaic pile using nothing but the stacked slices of muscle and brain matter, while several others turned to the deceased bodies of animals and criminals in order to thrill their onlookers by using electricity recreate any facial expression they might desire on the faces of the dead. As the experiments grew more extreme, so too did the views of those that followed them. The reality was, simply put, that the intense division between the two schools ran far deeper than they appeared on the surface, and the Galvanists and the Voltists were tapping into a rich political and theological debate that had been raging throughout Europe for several decades already. Galvanists, with their animal electricity and mystical poeticism were alluding to the existence of an invisible force that prevailed throughout the entire cosmos, creating, animating, and uniting all things. Voltists, on the other hand, were falling more in line with the radical materialists of today, who suggested that everything, including human life, was nothing more than a series of mechanical-material interactions. Importantly, for Galvanists, there was now proof that the human body and electricity were somehow intrinsically linked. Both theories harboured deeply subversive concepts at their core and they raised troubling questions for both the religious and political orthodoxy. What was life really if electricity could take place of the soul? Were all living beings equal and were humans no more special than rats or mice? And what was the point of the church or even God at all? For the most politically extreme, this question could just as easily be extended to the governments of the day. In the early 19th century, there was another deep question at the core of the arguments that had been troubling natural philosophers for centuries. What exactly was it that made living matter alive in the first place? These questions, theories and divisions all ultimately led to the publication of one of the most infamous books of the 19th century, as well as an experiment, somewhat less famous, that took place in Cambridge Lecture Theatre in 1819 following the murder of Mary Ann Weems and the conviction of her killer, a simple miller from the outskirts of London named Thomas Weems. The summer of 1819 had been another cold, wet period in a long string of poor weather that had lasted almost the entire decade. That August, the skies hung grey over the hardened mud of Cambridgeshire's unplowed fields. The town of Cambridge in the early 19th century was, like today, famous primarily for its university. Built in the 13th century, the colleges had expanded throughout the Middle Ages, injecting the market town with an influx of new residents and bringing a new class of people to an area that had previously centred around agriculture and the wool and leather trade. By 1819, the population floated around 10,000, and the growing centre was abuzz with trade that daily saw exports hauled along the roads to London and boats bringing goods into the town via the river. The town was still four years away from gaslight and at night the dim orange flames of oil lamps cast a hazy glow through the streets. Thomas Weems worked in a mill in Edmonton on the northern outskirts of London. He had found himself in Cambridgeshire in the morning of 7th of May begrudgingly trudging through the fields with his wife Mary Anne. The relationship between the couple was not what one might consider idyllic, having married a year previous after Mary had accused Thomas of getting her pregnant. The parish officials had stepped in and forced Thomas into marriage, only for Mary to discover that the pregnancy had all been a false alarm. This hadn't bothered Thomas any, since the couple had separated immediately following the ceremony anyway, with Thomas heading back to work in Edmonton, whilst Mary Ann moved in with her family in Godmanchester, just northwest of Cambridge. Now however, Mary Ann really was a problem for Thomas, since he had met a new woman, Maria Woodward, and the pair had plans to marry. He'd travelled up to Godmanchester to collect Mary and take her back, and fortunately she had agreed to give the relationship another go. But first, the pair had to march the 60 miles through fields and old dirt roads back down to Edmonton. By 10am on that morning, they had reached a field just outside of Royston about halfway through their journey, and had just sat down to take a rest when they came across Susanna Bird, who exchanged pleasantries with them as she passed by on her way to the market in the nearby town. That same afternoon, sometime between 1 and 2pm, Susanna Bird had finished her shopping and was on her way back home when she came across Weems once more, only this time he was all by himself. Curious, she stopped to ask him where the young lady had got to that she had seen him with earlier in the day. I left her behind, Weems told her. She is about spun up. I cannot get her any further, so I left her to get up by the coach. She wasn't quite sure how to take this news. Weems's manner gave her an uncomfortable feeling of suspicion, though she couldn't quite put her finger on the reason why. She just felt that she couldn't entirely trust what he was saying. And so, when she came upon the coach further along the road, she felt compelled to take a peek inside. Susanna's suspicion only grew when she found the inside completely empty, with no evidence of the young woman anywhere. Stepping back out of the coach, she made her way back down the road alongside a field belonging to a local farmer named Mr Wilkinson, and spotting a farmhand labouring in the fields with a hoe, she decided to air her concerns. The labourer, a local man named Richard Sell, agreed to check the next field with her, where she had seen the local couple that morning, to see if they could spot any sign of her. She passed through the gate where they went in, and immediately saw the young woman lying in the ditch, her face nearly flat to the ground, her shawl over her face, and her bonnet on the shawl. The body was covered all over with grass, which was strewed over by handfuls, only a foot and one of her fingers could be seen. There were marks on the grass by the ditch, as if there had been a great struggling and rolling about, and there was the trace of a man's foot from the place where the grass was tumbled about to the spot where the body lay. They moved the grass, and on searching her body, a garter was found around her neck, tied very tight. She had the fellow garter round her left leg. She was quite dead and black in the face. In what would prove to be a fantastic stroke of luck, at the very moment that the body was found, the magistrate, Reverend Brown, was passing by the field, and Susanna called him over to enlist his help. The reverend tracked down a local constable and pointed him in the direction that Weems was last seen to be heading. The constable then jumped onto a horse and cart and took off down the lane in pursuit. Meanwhile, back in the fields, the coroner was called and an inquest was set up that same evening, with a jury hustled together and hastily sworn in. Just as the room were taking their seats, the constable burst into the room in true dramatic fashion, with an apprehended Weems in tow. The room finally settled down and a long evening of testimony got underway, with the verdict of willful murder finalised at 1am. Thomas Weems was taken straight to the county jail to await the summer assizes and mary Ann's body was carted back to Godmanchester, where it was placed on display in a pub window to drive a bit of custom for the owner before she was finally buried in the local churchyard. Weems realised pretty early on that he stood no chance of getting off on his charges and instead he gave a full confession to the more or less anyone who would listen. When the jailer, Mr Robert Orridge, introduced his father and sister to the prisoner, he gave them a lurid description of his actions. I grasped my hands around her throat, pressed her windpipe with the thumbs, and exclaimed, Now I'll be the death of you, and I held her in that position for about five minutes, before tying one of her garters around her neck and hiding her body in a ditch. The summer of sizes kicked off in the first week of August, Thomas Weems' trial began about as well as he could have expected, with the first witness to the stand being a man named John Beck who testified to having picked him up in his horse and cart about 14 miles south of Godmanchester whilst he was on his way to pick up Mary Ann. Weems was busy telling John Beck all about his new lady friend, Maria Woodward, who he said was the finest young woman he had ever saw in his life. When Beck, knowing Weems and the fact that he was married, Told him that he could hardly marry Maria whilst he was still married to Mary Ann. Weems replied to him that it would be no problem, as he would soon get rid of her. Susanna Burt's testimony followed, and she told the court of how she had seen Thomas Weems and Mary Ann resting in the field, and of how she had gone on to discover the body along with the farmhand Richard Sell. If Weems wasn't already done for, Maria Woodward drove the nail home when she told the court how she had been seduced by Weems, who had told her. That he was a single man and that he was on his way to Godmanchester on the morning of the murder not to collect his secret wife but to collect some money that he was owed by his sister and that he had promised to marry her upon his return. It was all a bit too much for Weems who broke down in tears asking to take Maria's hand before she stood back down. If this show of emotion had managed to garner any sort of sympathy from the jury it was quickly destroyed when Robert Otteridge, the jailer, took to the stand and read to the court a lengthier and more detailed version of the confession that he had given his sister whilst in jail. After I had been at work with Mr Andrews about a month, I got acquainted with a young woman named Maria Woodward. I represented myself as a single man. After being acquainted with her, I determined to marry her and to murder my wife. I first thought of cutting her throat. In three or four days, I changed my mind and determined to hang her. On the Friday morning, I left Godmanchester with my wife about 5 or 6 o'clock. After walking about 14 or 15 miles, she complained of being tired. I asked her if she had not some toast in her pocket, with which she did not eat for breakfast, and she said she had some. I said to her, if you will go in the field and sit down and eat the toast, I will take a nap till the coach comes up. We sat down together and she began to eat the toast. I clasped my hands around her neck and said, now I am going to be the death of you. I stuck my two thumbs into her windpipe. She said, Oh Lord! And that was all the noise she made. And I pressed her with my thumbs till she was dead, which was in about five minutes. I then took the garter off her leg and tied it round her neck. I then put her into a ditch, or more like a drain, put some grass over her and then left her. I then intended to go to Edmonton and go to the clerk of the parish to put the bands in and be married. After this, Weems was asked if he had anything to say to the court. In his defence, he told the room of how Marianne had lied about her pregnancy, had stolen money from him and had also stolen his watch in order to give to another man. The jury left the courtroom for mere minutes before returning with a guilty verdict. Crying once more, Thomas Weems sat on and listened as the judge passed down a sentence of execution by hanging and as a final insult, save for only the most heinous criminals, His body was ordered to be delivered to the surgeons for dissection. For the rest of the week, Weems sat in Cambridge jail until midday on Friday the 6th of August when he was marched outside and hanged from the gate in front of an exuberant crowd. His body was left swinging in the breeze for an hour before finally being removed, placed onto a cart and taken down to a packed chemical lecture room in the Botanical Garden where Professor of Chemistry James Cumming awaited, along with a rather large galvanic battery. Once in the medical college, Williams had a rather unusual fate lined up for him. Professor James Cumming, a rector as well as a lecturer, was a busy man since taking his position as chemistry professor at Cambridge in 1815. Alongside his church work, he had been turning his somewhat eccentric hand to lecturing every day on a diverse array of subjects to an enthralled audience. Fond of playing up the dangerous elements of his experiments in order to spice things up, he routinely pointed out scars on the brickwork, where past experiments had almost catastrophically failed. He was also a reasonably hands-on type of teacher, and he had a habit of electrocuting members of the audience in order for them to experience the power of the batteries that he had used in his galvanic lectures. At other times, he chose to use the battery to execute a cat instead. In an age when attending lectures was voluntary and there was much competition between professors to reel in their students, Cummings Theatrics were designed to entice as much as they were to inspire and educate. At 1.25pm on that August afternoon, Weems' body presented to him the perfect opportunity to teach to a packed hall. Together with Dr. Oakes, who was on hand to carry out the necessary dissections, he had seven experiments devised and one hour to carry them out. Taking two electrodes, he began placing them on various nerves, muscles and organs of Weems' body in order to attempt to stimulate a biological response. Experiment 1. One wire was applied to a small incision in the skin of the neck over the parvargum, and the other to one made between the 6th and 7th rib, when at each discharge of the battery, the chest was disturbed in a manner similar to a slight shuddering from cold, the period of the shuddering corresponding with the number of plates struck by the operator in the last trough. Experiment 2. The parvargum was laid bare, and one of the wires passed under it, the other was placed in contact with the diaphragm through an incision made deeper than the last between the 6th and 7th rib. The contractions were evidently stronger than in the last experiment and to all appearance confined to the same set of muscles. Not the smallest action of the diaphragm was perceptible. Experiment 4. One wire was placed under the supraorbital nerve, the other remaining under the parvagum. At each discharge of the battery, it produced considerable action of the muscles of the face, and more particularly, on the side of which it was applied. Though not expressive of any of the mental affections of life, it might more properly be called a convulsive twitching. Experiment 6. The wire being passed under the ulnar nerve at its separation from the auxiliary plexus. The electric circuit was completed by bringing the other in contact with the radial nerve at the wrist. The flexor muscles of the arm and hand were thrown into strong action, the arm being drawn up and the fist closing with considerable force. In this experiment, the muscular contractions were more strongly marked than in any of the preceding. Experiment seventh Consisted in placing the wires in contact with the spinal marrow between the third and fourth cervical vertebrae and the tibial nerve in its passage behind the inner ankle. A more extensive, though less vigorous effect followed this exhibition of the galvanic influence than in any of the above-mentioned experiments. Most of the muscles of the trunk and extremities answered feebly the discharges of the battery. Cummings' experiments might have sounded pretty unique and out there, but they were, in fact, attempting to recreate a series of experiments carried out a year earlier, in November of 1818, in Glasgow, by Professor Andrew Yew. Just like the dissection and electrocution of Weems' body, Yew was also experimenting on a recently executed criminal. Matty Clydesdale had murdered a 70-year-old man in the streets of Glasgow whilst in the throes of a drunken rage. Ewer was far more enthusiastic about his own results in comparison to coming, however, though the account of the Glasgow experiments were published 47 years after the fact by a newspaper editor named Peter Mackenzie, and were almost certainly sensationalised. The body of Clydesdale was then carried forward by the town officers and placed on a table directly opposite the professor, The murderer reposed in the very dress worn by him on the scaffold. The white nightcap, which covered his ghastly face, was speedily removed. The cords, which had tied his hands and feet to prevent him from wrestling or prolonging his life on the gibbet were also speedily removed and cast aside. The murderer himself was then lifted and placed in a sitting posture in an easy armchair, directly looking in front of the audience, and looking, too, as if he irrespective of his doom, was one of the audience themselves. A light air tube connected with the galvanic battery was soon placed in one of his nostrils. The bellows then began gently to blow into that nostril in solemn reality. His chest immediately heaved. He drew breath. Another tube was speedily placed in the next nostril. It made the executed body to heave all the more. A few other operations went swiftly on, which really we cannot very well describe, but at last the tongue of the murderer moved out to his lips. His eyes also opened widely. He stared, apparently in astonishment around him, while his head, arms and legs at the same time also actually moved. And we declare he made a feeble attempt, as if to rise from the chair whereon he was seated. He did positively rise from it a moment or two afterwards, and stood upright, At seeing which, the thrill ran through the excited and crowded room, that his neck had not been dislocated on the gibbet, and that he had now actually come to life again through the extraordinary operation of that galvanic battery. At this sudden, startling, and most unexpected sight, some of the students screamed out with horror. Not a few of them fainted on the spot. Others, of a sterner class, clapped their hands as if in exultation at the triumph of the galvanic battery. Certain it is that the professor himself and his assistants stood amazed with some of their own experiments, and ere the lapse of another minute or two, Dr. Jeffrey pulled out his unerring lancet and plunged it into the jugular vein of the culprit, who instantly fell down upon the floor like a slaughtered ox on the blow of the butcher. Yew's experiments, though unlikely to have really reanimated the lifeless body of Matthew Clydesdale like Mackenzie's description had detailed, were nevertheless seen as a success by the Professor, and an undoubted win for the Galvanists. Yew was quite sure that he had discovered the theories of how to reanimate life, and that this would eventually be able to be used to restore a victim of drowning, hanging or suffocation. So what exactly was going on in that Cambridge Lecture Theatre back in 1819? Was Weems's dissection an attempt to resurrect a lifeless criminal, or was it something perhaps more political? It's important to remember that Professor Cumming was both a professor and a man of the church. Aside from his work on chemistry at the college, he was always operating as the rector of a small parish named North Runcton in Norfolk. Given this information, it seems unlikely that he would have been a devout backer of Galvanism, with all of its materialist implications. Further, it seems almost impossible that Cumming would not have overlooked the publication of the reports of Professor Ewer's experiments, on the executed criminal, Matthew Clydesdale, a year earlier, in all of their grisly detail. Although a step down from the later account of the experiments, Ewer's own report on the dissection had been widely published in the newspapers, including his conclusion that the results had been truly wonderful. Every muscle in its countenance was simultaneously thrown into fearful action. Rage, horror, despair, anguish and ghastly smiles united their hideous expression in the murderer's face, surpassing far the wildest representations of a Fuseli or a Keen. At this period, several of the spectators were forced to leave the apartment from terror or sickness, and one gentleman fainted. Were Cummings' experiments then, designed to meticulously repeat Eurozone, really an effort to expose them for the overhyped fantasies that he felt sure they really were? It would have been an important opportunity to put to bed any radical undercurrents that existed at the university. If that was the case, then the reports following Cummings' experiments were precisely what he would have wanted, as they tempered the story considerably. From the account given by Dr. Ure, they have been led to form perhaps too sanguine an expectation of the efficacy of galvanism in restoring suspended animation. It is therefore to be regretted that, although undertaken with a battery at least equally powerful and with every attention to ensure success, These experiments afford no confirmation of the hopes held out by those at Glasgow. It's also unavoidable to mention that in the same year that Jura's experiments were published, Mary Shelley's infamous book, Frankenstein, had also been published, a story that the author freely admitted had been influenced by by the scientific dabblings with Galvanism. Often interpreted as a critique of materialist philosophies, its political and theological subtext would not have been overlooked by people like Cumming. Though its criticisms and questions on the role of ethics in medicine were conveniently ignored ethics aside as far as coming was concerned, orthodoxy at least in Cambridge was restored. naturally, this didn't last forever. The debate raged on between galvanism and voltism, materialism and vitalism, long after Weems's body was finally admitted to the ground, and Eure's experiments were repeated at least once more in Glasgow, in attempts to prove the incredible resurrection properties of Galvanism. The early electrostatic experiments and development of electricity alongside medicine laid the ground for a host of radical interpretations concerning what it actually was that the electricity was doing, its role in the human body, and, by extension, the social fabric and even the very nature of human life. For every excited spectator who had visited the lecture theatres to see the wonders of the mysterious force of electricity, there were those that saw the experiments as validation for their worldview, and even more, that saw them as a terrifying progression into a dark and uncertain future. With the help of the sensationalist lectures that had become so fashionable in forwarding the use of electricity in medicine in attempts to uncover the mysteries of life, along with the general improvements in the understanding of electricity as a natural force, Galvanism eventually disappeared into the realm of quackery. By the mid-19th century, experiments attempting to revive dead criminals, and equally, experiments designed to discredit such efforts, were increasingly seen by the public as something to be fearful of rather than entertained by, and their conclusions were increasingly criticised as a new generation of scientists pulled away from the natural philosophies of the late Enlightenment. The discovery of electromagnetic induction by Michael Faraday in 1831 paved the way for electricity to forge a new role in medicine, and a host of electric-based treatments were devised. The pulvermacia electric belt was one of the most successful, designed to treat ailments of a nervous and debilitating character. It consisted of a long chain of batteries and electrodes that were worn wherever one felt they had an ailment, and professed to cure weak men suffering from anything from migraines, anxiety, poor digestion and constipation, to gout, muscle pain and a lack of physical energy. Aversion was even made especially for ladies that specialised in curing delicate women. Electrotherapy rose to prominence and took a platform in medicine that continued for almost 100 years. Along with all the mad science, self-shock devices that were constantly invented, the dream of resuscitation sparked by the early Galvanists was never entirely forgotten. Instead of bringing back those long-dead in disturbing zombie-like experiments, early defibrillator-style electric shock devices, utilized most often to jumpstart the hearts of surgical patients that had succumbed a little too deeply to the anaesthetic qualities of chloroform, were used in increasing regularity. In the modern era, scientists are uniform on the conclusion that it's impossible to generate life from a corpse, and the experiments going on in the lecture theatres of the 1800s are largely forgotten despite the fact that many of them, macabre as they may seem, eventually led to many practices used in modern medicine. Defibrillators of all kinds are obvious examples, but galvanic practices are used in nearly every field of medicine. The 19th century had kicked off with decapitated oxen heads being electrocuted with early batteries, and within a hundred years, electricity had moved from the forefront of progressive science to the advertisements in the back pages of newspapers viewed as nothing more than quackery. It had been represented as a dangerous and exciting force, both physically and socially, and with the science of the Industrial Revolution, it had eventually been embraced as the future. That, so that was a sort of brief-ish history of electricity and galvanism and uh, the resurrection of Thomas Weems, or, or sort of the, the intentionally, perhaps... Failed Resurrection of Thomas Williams, And we'll talk a little bit about that theory after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. When you're at your best, you can do great things. But, you know, sometimes life just gets a bit on top of you, starts bogging you down and holding you back. From doing the things that, you know, you feel like you want to do or achieving what you want to achieve. Just being the best you, basically. Because when you're being your best you, you can achieve great things and perhaps if you are feeling a little bit like that then working with a therapist can help you get to those places that you want to be because when you feel empowered you're just more prepared to take on everything that life chucks at you i've been doing BetterHelp now for i think a month now coming on i started doing it because of this advertising slot and i wanted to check it out and test it out and make sure you know it was it was what i want something i wanted to sponsor and uh, i i i, I have nothing but good things to say about it. It's it like I have a bunch of bullet points to read out that says it's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. And you know that's the bullet points. But in truth, that 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 is what it is. You know, it's I get up on a Monday morning, I rock up to my online uh, therapy session, and do it on my own time when I have the the time to spare. And it's it's really been enjoyable and a, and, a, and a, i think a positive experience in my life to 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 use it and try it out um starting therapy can be scary um but it's very i found it to be quite a casual um experience being able to sort of basically sit you know in my pajamas on a monday morning and do it all online so that's you know it's been great for that from that perspective um when when you start you have to fill out a, a brief questionnaire get matched match with a licensed therapist um and if you don't necessarily like that therapist you can change at any point I've been all right with my therapist I I haven't felt the need to change but if for some reason you feel like it's not working or whatever there's no additional charges you can just swap at any time so yeah overall I I think it's been a really sort of beneficial experience for me and I think it could be a a benefit for most people Uh, you know I I think one of the big misconceptions is that you need to wait for some great trauma to happen in your life before you sort of would go to see a therapist when in fact You know, it it can be a good way of just working out just those little things that start sort of like getting in your way every now and again, you know, just sort of, they sort of build up over time to actually impact your life larger than you realise. So, you know, why not tackle them whilst they're still small things, if you like. Um, So yeah, if you are perhaps interested and you want to live a more empowered life, then therapy can maybe get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash dark histories and you get 10% off for your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Dark Histories. Cheers.
1: Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Avery. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again that's themysteriousjapan.com
0: Welcome back. So yeah there's not too much to say about this episode so I won't dwell and keep you too long. Um, I think just to kick off I'll I'll sort of explain my position going in because interestingly i'd never actually read frankenstein and I, I hadn't realized until i started sort of thinking about doing this episode on like you know i i sort of over christmas was thinking i'd like to do an episode on early electricity and perhaps you know the, the way it was used by people in sort of kooky ways and um so immediately i started looking at medicine history because that's you know usually where it's the most kookiest um And and I found this um, sort of series of experiments and uh, and I thought, oh, you know, I should probably read Frankenstein before I sort of get too deep into researching for this episode, really. Um, I I would have liked to have written more about sort of Frankenstein and and, and the the way it was influenced by what was going on and and what it actually was about, you know, like deep down, what its subtext, what it all meant. But realistically, you know, I, I only read it like quickly just the one time and I, so I didn't really feel like I was qualified to go too deeply into it but um but yeah it was kind of funny how I'd never actually read it because I think for a lot of especially English uh kids they you they read it in school as part of like their the curriculum uh but unfortunately my English literature teacher was supremely boring and picked all of the most boring books for the curriculum so yeah I didn't get to read uh Frankenstein back then but yeah it was quite interesting reading that anyway but um Yeah. So a little bit about the episode. I thought it was interesting. I think the theory that Cumming was actually trying to discredit Galvanism was actually a really interesting one. Because when I first read uh, the account, so so coming into the episode, I first read Cumming's experiment and I thought that was pretty wild. And I was like, whoa, you know, like they're like trying to bring this guy back to life. This is crazy. And then I read sort of some other experiments that were far wilder and I realised how tempered in its language the uh, report of the coming experiment actually was and how it was clearly sort of playing it down. Like, oh, nothing really happened. They basically just tried to electrocute this body, which, you know, when you first read it, it's pretty wild. But actually, when you sort sort of look at what was going on, the report essentially says nothing really happened much. Which was quite interesting, I thought. And say so especially in comparison with, say, the resort, the report of um, Dr. Yu's experiments, where that was much more sensationalist. And, like, as far as were, Like, if you read it on a page, as far as you're concerned, it was basically, he'd brought this guy back to life. I mean, so much so that the really sensationalist version of it, he ended up, you know, having to stab him with a scalpel to kill, essentially, a revived zombie, which obviously, you know, didn't happen. But I thought it was interesting that that say um did that theory that that instead he was actually using these experiments not to recreate and show them to a different lecture hall he was actually using them to recreate and show them to be false and so then this is where i started digging sort of deeper into it a little bit the social um and the political side of things and it, and it was fascinating how these two people the, these galvanists and the voltists actually because so, obviously this was quite a short introduction to that, but they actually were like very like revolutionary ideas, and people were terrified of them like politically because you know you had like all these sort of um uh voltists that were sort of materialist in their viewpoints and and uh, and very uh, and often heading up like revolutionary ideas in in s- like society and government because they were sort of saying you know if you know that the, the order of social life is wrong you know if if there is no such thing as a god and we don't need churches why do we also need governments like who are you we're all the same essentially you know we're all of one body and and of we're all just a series of mechanistic uh interactions uh so almost a, a, a sort of nihilist view um upon things and just almost like a, you need to burn everything to the ground and people were terrified of this idea and so it was quite seen as quite a dangerous idea and so yeah basically both the Galvanists and the voltaists were just seen as these these very dangerous ideas to to sort of the orthodox social order um you know like like and and across all I th- what I found interesting was it how it was across all elements of of the social order so you know it wasn't just the government or just the church it was all of it it was like the government the church everything um and so it was really quite an important experiment for coming to sort of show that what you've read about this isn't real. This is the truth. You know, the, these people aren't being resurrected and the theory is wrong in order to kind of quash rebellious thoughts and and, and groups of people within the college itself. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. You know, and and it's certainly an interesting time to read about. Unfortunately, there's not a great deal. I mean, there may be there there is more books about it, but I didn't find a great deal of books uh, about this subject. Mostly, I I used a lot of um, PhD papers and things like that that were available online. Um, One really interesting one, actually, was a paper written uh, by someone called... uh, I'm going to get his name horribly wrong... Iffan rees Morris, I think it might be Ifen, um, but it's I W A N. But that is, I think, could that sounds possibly like a Welsh name? So I, I don't know how to. It's it's in the show notes anyway. Uh, there'll be a um, in in the sources in the show notes, but it's called "Radicals, Romantics, and Electrical Showmen: Placing Galvanism at the End of the English Enlightenment." And it, this was a, a a sort of paper written for the um, the. Royal Society notes and records of the Royal Society of London and and that's a really interesting um, paper to read on the subject uh, but um, but yeah mostly I think that's the sort of stuff if you do want to go on and read a little bit about I think it's a good idea to read like academic papers on the subject because I say I didn't find too many books on it and the books I did find sort of tended to focus uh, less on that sort of like socio political kind of elements and and more on like there's just the history of it um so yeah that that but that aspect of this I, I do definitely think is i do definitely think is worth reading a little more into if if you did find it interesting anyway on that note, I think I'll leave it there because say there's not a lot more to say about it. Thanks very much for listening. I really enjoyed writing this episode. I thought it was fun to do almost like a mashing together of two sorts of episodes that I normally do because we had like the kind of history of Galvanism and the and the macabre side of it, and then all of a sudden, bam! In the middle, there's this weird sort of true crime bit. <laughs> I thought that was quite fun to sort of smash those together. So I enjoyed this one. Um, I really enjoyed researching the Thomas Weems uh, section as well because there, there was not a lot about that, so that was all like primary sources, which was really really good fun to dig into. So anyway, um, yeah, thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can contact me at dark contact at darkhistories.com is the email. Uh, or you can dm me on any of the social medias uh, all the links are in the show notes and on the website which is darkhistories.com uh you can uh find all the ways of contacting me there as well as all the ways if you would like to support the show which you know if you'd like to that would be great but no worries if not the show is always free um yeah otherwise as, as far as that goes that's about that I shall see you in a couple more weeks Until then, take care, stay healthy and sleep tight.